Welcome to The 7 Series with Greg Davidson, where we tap the biblical number of perfection in creative ways to explore faith, science, and culture. Welcome to Episode 2 of The 7 Series. Today's episode and the next can each stand on their own for their content, but they will also serve as a foundation for a seven-part series that will follow on how to understand the layered message of the Genesis creation story. You'll get mostly me for episodes two and three, but later episodes will be more conversational with guest authors, influencers, and experts. Today's episode asks the question, what's up with the genealogies in the Bible? I am your host, Greg Davidson, and joined again for color commentary by my friend and colleague, Dr. Lance Yarborough. Hey. Glad to be back again. Though, if this is a podcast about genealogies, uh, should I pull up a pillow? Maybe sneak in a little nap? Yeah, that captures the sense for many Christians. Genealogies are right up there with dimensions of the temple or how to treat a mildew spot on the wall of a Hebrew house. About as interesting as drawing paint. The eyes quickly scan down through the text until we get back to a story. But hang with us for this episode, and you may come away with a new appreciation for a biblical list of names. So, no pillow. And no nap. Stay with me. In some cultures even today, listing off names is one way of saying this is not a fable or made-up story. This refers to something that was happening at a real place and time in history to real people. I'm reminded of a missionary who was sharing stories from the Bible and was starting to work on a translation. When he was reading and got to a genealogy, he skipped over it, not wanting to distract or bore his listeners with a list of Hebrew names. His native assistant stopped him, saying, read the names. He shrugged and did. Eyes then grew wide among those gathered, soon asking him, why didn't you tell us before that this story was real? In their culture, attaching ancestral names to a narrative was a way of saying the stories were not just myths or fables. There are also messages that we find wrapped into lists that make use of the numbers that we introduced in episode one. If you haven't listened to that one yet, stop right here and go back. In ancient times in the Middle and Near East, the number 10 represented wholeness or completeness, probably derived from having 10 fingers and 10 toes. In Genesis 5, the list from Abraham to Noah is 10 generations. In Genesis 11, Noah to Abraham is 10 generations. When we see repetition of symbolic numbers, it should make us stop to ask what's going on. In this case, specific names are provided, which indicates a historical context, but provided in groups of 10 with symbolic significance that should give us pause before applying a 21st century expectation that the list must be exhaustive. It's possible there were names left out, keeping it to 10 for symbolic purposes. This doesn't mean or even imply error, for son of can also simply mean descendant of. This is more than just speculation, because we find other places in scripture where names in a genealogical list in one place are skipped in another. In the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1, for example, four names are left out that are known from the Old Testament record. 
But doesn't Genesis 5, it, it provides specific ages for each father when the son is born. It does. Though here, again, this can also mean a person was a certain age when a son was born who would eventually give rise to the next name on the list. The message communicated in the genealogy is not about a precise number of individuals or years past. The importance or significance is the connection from Adam to Noah and from Noah to Abraham. There's even more if we revisit the genealogies of Jesus. You said genealogies, so as in more than one. I did. There are two genealogies, one in Matthew 1 and another in Luke 3. And they aren't the same. No, there are some significant differences, in some very cool ways. Matthew traces the lineage from Abraham to Jesus. Luke goes all the way back to Adam. Both lean in on the number, drumroll please, seven. Recall this podcast is called The Seven Series. Matthew uses three groups of 14, two times seven, from Abraham to David, from David to the deportation of Israel, their exile, and from the deportation to Jesus. Luke uses two sets of 21. That's three times seven for the math challenge. The specific names tell us the lineage between Jesus and David and Abraham and Adam is real, but what about the actual numbers? Here it gets interesting. There are some peculiarities if reading it from a modern literary perspective where we expect a simple and straightforward listing of all the names in the lineage. The list of names from Abraham to David is essentially the same in Matthew and Luke, just one extra name in Luke's list. But after David, the two genealogies split in very different ways. Matthew traces it through David's son Solomon, the next king. Luke traces it through David's son Nathan, not a king. Where Matthew records two sets of 14 names to get to Jesus, or four times seven, Luke records two sets of 21 names, six times seven, exactly 50% more names. The two lists merge at Joseph, the husband of Mary, but with Matthew identifying Jacob as Joseph's father and Luke identifying Levi as Joseph's father. Is this where we throw in the towel on biblical reliability? It, it looks like mistakes are everywhere. Only if we insist on using a 21st century Western rubric to understand the text. Remember the Bible was written for us, but not to us. The ancient Hebrews, Greeks, and Romans were not us. There are errors only if we insist that only strictly literal readings are historic or honoring the scripture. Clearly, Joseph did not have two biological fathers, and we know from looking at the Old Testament that Matthew left out some names between David and the deportation. And based on the comparisons with Luke, more names were almost certainly left out between the deportation and Jesus to limit the list to 14 names. So what do we make of all this? What's going on and why should we care? Weren't you supposed to let me ask that? Ah, that would have been good. Go ahead. Seems like a hot mess. What's going on and, and why should we care? Some pretty cool things, actually. I will make two points. First, the biblical writers employed culturally understood literary devices, even in something as seemingly straightforward as a genealogy, 
that modern readers miss when artificially forcing the text into a literalistic interpretational framework. Number two, the message of the Bible never attempts to step out of the culture into which its message was delivered, with the critical exception of when a cultural norm conflicts with a theological truth. All right, that first point on the use of literary devices. This brings us back to the number seven, not as a magical or mystical number, but one with literary symbolism. The difference is important. If the writers thought there was something mystical about seven, they may have looked for and wanted readers to believe the actual numbers of generations between Adam and Abraham and David and Jesus were all exactly divisible by seven, divinely communicating that this could only have come about by the will of a tinkering God. But there's no slyness in this telling. Matthew wrote to a Hebrew audience who placed great importance on genealogies and knew the Old Testament record. They knew names were left out and did not try to correct it. His selection of names and groupings into three sets of 14 accomplishes two things. First, grouping names as multiples of seven is an expression of God's perfect design, not in the physical quantity, but as a literary device that communicates the importance of the lineage going back to the promises God made to David, to Abraham, and to Adam. Jesus is the fulfillment and embodiment of those promises. Second, groupings into sets of equal numbers also serves as a convenient memory tool, with each division hinged by a notable person or event. Three sets of 14 names are given, with King David as the first hinge point and the great deportation, their exile, as the second hinge. Recognition of literary devices is important not only in understanding the deeper meaning, but also in avoiding pointless arguments and anxiety over the accuracy of the Bible that arise when forcing the text into a modern literary framework. So that was point one. The biblical writers employed culturally understood literary devices, even in something as seemingly straightforward as a genealogy, that modern readers miss when artificially forcing the text into a literalistic interpretational framework. So on to point two. The message of the Bible never attempts to step out of the culture into which its message was delivered, with the critical exception of when a cultural norm conflicts with a theological truth. What do you mean by not stepping out of the culture? That's probably best explained by example, but we need a bit of background first. In the genealogies of Jesus, the split after David is argued by most biblical scholars to represent the kingly lineage through Joseph via adoption in Matthew and the biological lineage of Jesus through Mary in Luke. This is actually a big deal because it resolves a tension found in the Old Testament where the prophet Jeremiah, in chapter 33, verse 17, told listeners that God promised David he would have a son on the throne of Israel forever. Yet just a few chapters later, in 3630, Jeremiah declares that the last king, Jehoiakim, is cursed and his kingly line completely cut off. These have the appearance of being mutually exclusive prophecies. Now consider the two genealogies of Jesus. The lineage through Mary goes back through David's son, Nathan, which is not subject to the curse of Jehoiakim. Yet through adoption, 
Jesus also traces his lineage from Joseph back through the kingly line of Solomon back to David. The power of adoption underlies the entire gospel message, whereby non-Jews may be grafted into the family of God and granted full rights and privileges of children of the king. Curse and promise resolved. Okay, that's really cool. But if that was all intentional, why didn't Luke just use Mary's name and, and tell us Eli was Joseph's father-in-law? Doesn't it feel all like a mistake? Again, only if insisting on a modern interpretational framework. In the culture of the time, genealogy started with the father, with no explanation needed if then tracing back through the maternal lineage. The inspired text does not attempt to add notes or caveats or corrections to accommodate the sensibilities of readers 2,000 years removed. The Bible does not step out of the culture into which it was written. Unless a cultural norm clashes with the theological truth. And we find a great example of the same genealogies. While both Matthew and Luke follow the convention of naming the father in their genealogies, Matthew's list breaks with convention by naming not only five women, but women the culture considered to have tainted histories. Tamar posed as a prostitute to get pregnant by her father-in-law. Rahab was a prostitute and a Canaanite from the doomed city of Jericho. Ruth, the great-grandmother of David, was a foreigner from the hated nation of Moab. Bathsheba was the subject of David's adultery, and Mary was pregnant out of wedlock. Inclusion of these names challenged the theological foundations of three different cultural norms. One, only men were significant in God's kingdom. Two, only the noble or morally pure were worthy of mention. And three, God's grace extended only to Jews. Wow, I may never read a genealogy the same again. Yeah, no promises that modern genealogies will take on any new life. But hopefully listeners will see the biblical genealogies in a whole new light. You can find more Gems and the Genealogies in The Manifold Beauty of Genesis 1, co-authored by my good friend and Old Testament scholar, Ken Turner. Join us next time when we dive into the subject of inerrancy and how it may not mean quite what you think. Music